Hi, gang. It's Dr. Chris, and you are listening to Vibrant Potential. Have you ever noticed how your mind and brain play a huge role in how your body feels and behaves? If you listen to episode 31 with Brock Armstrong or episode 20 with Dr. Denny Thompson, you've heard me explore some of how the mind, the brain, and your mental state can affect your body. Today's episode is a fun one. My longtime friend Lance Haugie and I discuss some of the interplay between what he refers to as subtle energy and the more tangible physical body. As always, both my guest and I share personal details about how this stuff shows up in our lives. I think Lance and I will probably teach a seminar on this stuff someday, so we could definitely talk about these ideas for hours and days. Lance is a rolfer, a healer, and a psychotherapist. He's a wealth of knowledge when it comes to mind-body medicine. In the first 20 minutes, we really blow through a lot of ideas. If you're up for a fun listen and you're open to some discussion about the intangible, this episode's for you. If you want to hear what's in the research only, you'll probably like one of the other episodes a little more. If you do choose to listen into our discussion today, please stay until the end. Starting now, every week I'm going to give you an invitation at the end of every episode. These invites will be extremely varied from each other. I hope to infuse them with fun, approach them with curiosity and open-mindedness, and you'll get a ton out of them, I promise. They are all intended to help you reach your vibrant potential. Welcome to Vibrant Potential. We provide you with everything you need to know to overcome stress, fatigue, and chronic health challenges, as well as optimizing your performance in fitness, relationship, and business. We use integrative health solutions and functional medicine strategies, including brain-based approaches, inspired fitness tips, emotional intelligence coaching, and spiritual growth techniques, so you can live the life you want, connect deeply with others, and fulfill your vibrant potential. Your host is functional medicine expert, genetic biohacker, and triathlon coach, Dr. Chris Frickman. Hello, everyone. This is Dr. Chris Frickman with Vibrant Potential. And today I'm interviewing Lance Haugie. Lance, thanks for coming on the show. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. You bet. Lance, uh, you and I have known each other actually for a number of years. Uh, We're good friends and you have a fascinating practice. And I want to start the show off by introducing you and what you do a little bit to them. And I think you can do that better than I can. You do emotional work with people, energetic work, mental work, physical work. I know that this could be a can of worms, but can you try to, do you have like a way that you talk to people about what it is you do? I would say it's a system of interactional consciousness work that heals trauma. Whoa. And <laughs> <laughs> what does that mean? <laughs> yeah. Interactional consciousness work. Right. So consciousness work, generally speaking, is uh, med- meditation uh, awakening, uh, mindfulness work, things like that. So do you have to be pursuing enlightenment to come and see you? No, okay. you don't. 
That's a that's a common misperception. There seem to be these two camps. There there's the the camp where people are pursuing enlightenment, and then there's the camp where people are are uh, staying within the ego or material world. And and obviously, more and more of those two camps are 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 coming together. Eastern and Western approaches are coming together. And what I've noticed is that the seeking enlightenment teachings out there tend to be focused towards just that, some, a state of enlightenment or a state of awakening. And what I've noticed over the years is that these various states of consciousness and, and ways of focusing attention that are typically aimed at enlightenment can be used to affect the body, can be used to affect the emotions and, and the thoughts. And that, that idea is implicit in the teachings, but uh, again, people tend to interpret it as though it's one or the other. And so when I'm working with a person who has chronic back pain, I'm using my conscious attention in a specific way to affect their conscious attention that's going to help make their back feel better. And that's what you mean by interactional. It's like your consciousness and their consciousness. Is that the right way to say it? That's right. Okay. Yeah, it's, it's about the interactional field between us. So mm-hmm. relational psychotherapy is, is very steep in that as far as uh, a therapeutic field, as far as transference, as far as the symbiotic uh, interaction that happens between two people. Uh, again, the, the Western approach of psychotherapy is, is very steeped in all that, all that language and those types of techniques. But what I've noticed is, is there seems to be an absence of the mindful or, or uh, conscious perception aspect of it. And so what I do is I, I'm marrying the two as far as a, a specific type of what I'm calling conscious awareness versus ego perception as the tool and then working within the transferential field with clients with the goal of bringing them towards a conscious awareness of the malady that they're struggling with. Because what I've noticed over time working with clients and, and working with myself is that where a person is stuck, where they have a, a chronic symptom or malady of some kind, there there's when you learn to to look for it, there becomes an obvious uh, split between that person's conscious awareness and the specific uh, area of the body or area of the psyche where the problem is occurring. Wow. Okay. I just want to make this stuff crystal clear for people. Could we do like a specific example? Yeah. Of how, you know, like a body thing might show up and like emotions would, you know, be a part of it and consciousness would be a part of it and that kind of stuff? Sure. Okay. I'm just thinking right now about the physical thing that's bothering me and my body the most right now is my right Achilles has been bugging me. I started doing parkour. Uh, recently, and I got like really into it for about three weeks. I was going, you know, I hadn't done anything like that for a while. Um, in my past, I had done like martial arts and and a little bit of gymnastics and and things like that. So in my life, I had done a little bit of things like jumping and flipping and things, but not in the recent years. 
So I went and I started doing like, I don't know, three to five hours a week of parkour on top of, you know, the running and the cycling and the lifting and things that I do uh, regularly anyway. There is literally like a ball that's very palpable on my Achilles. It's extremely sore and it's it's red and flamed. Like there's days I'm practically hobbling around like an old man. I mean, it's, it, you know, forget about like like running and, and jumping and flipping, like I just, you know, I'd just be happy to mow the lawn at this point. Mm-hmm. Now, actually, I've done some work and it's 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 definitely on the mend. I'm feeling much better now and stuff. It's still in there, but I'm still working on it. Okay, so that's some background. You know, the first thing is to make a discernment between did did something happen where where what's going on with your Achilles would basically be going on with anyone's, right? It, or does it suggest some sort of uh, weakness or, or stru- uh, vulnerability to that injury. And so you could say, well, there's lots of people that are doing parkour uh, just like you are and, and don't have that happening with their Achilles. So it would suggest there's, there's something going on that's leaving your Achilles vulnerable to, uh, to, to that kind of problem. And so then it's a matter of looking at is there a structural uh, thing going on is there a, is there a structural component where where there's a an excessive force being applied to that Achilles tendon that ideally would be distributed more throughout uh, the lower leg and ankle and foot. Meaning, and, like, and, oh, you're quad dominant or something like that. Yeah, that kind of thing. It. The, the forces that, that move through the body, as you know, um, are, are architectures designed in a certain way to uh, deal with, with the forces. And when you alter that structure from various holding patterns in the body, and I can explain more what I mean by holding patterns, uh, you alter how the forces are... are uh, are dealt with, and so you get tissues that are taking way more force than they're really designed to, and then you get chronic issues. And so you can you can you know you can ice the Achilles, and you can take anti-inflammatories, and you can massage it and do this and that. But if you don't change what's going on in the structure, uh, you know it's it remains vulnerable to that same kind of injury. And so that's you know that's the basis of of structural body work. Uh, methods and you know and and simply trying to use good form in general versus bad form we all know that when you use proper form whether you're lifting weights or throwing a ball uh, you're you're less prone to injury than when you're when you're using uh, form that that uh, you know that that puts stress on joints in a way that those joints aren't designed so but what I'm getting at is even when you're trying to do good form, my guess is that there's something going on in your structure that is, that is uh, driving excessive force into that Achilles tendon. So then if you go to the next step, well, why is your, why is your structure like that, right? What's the, what's the cause of it? So rather than simply let's try to fix your structure so that, so that it's correct, I'm looking at, well, how did your structure get like that in the first place? And so there's bound to be fascial restriction. There's fa- bound to be uh, a certain way that that your nerves are firing. So, so far, like you're kind of going through a little flow sheet almost, which is great. Yes. What it comes down to is I'm, I'm basically always 
trying to ask the question of why, you know, why is that happening? So if we say that your Achilles is troublesome because there's something going on structurally, why is there something going on structurally? What, what, what was the cause of that and what's, what's perpetuating it? Because my sense is that, that the system's always trying to right itself. And so if it can't right itself, there's something going on that's preventing it. So if you're, like to use your terminology, if, if you're quad dominant, why are you quad dominant? You know, there's a, there's a reason for that somewhere. And rather than just prescribe uh, exercises to do to uh, strengthen the opposing muscles, I'm trying to look at, well, what's the reason for that pattern in the first place? And so the, the way the flow chart tends to go is it tends to go from the actual symptom to w- what's going on structurally. So when I'm looking at in the, in the gross material uh, level, as, as far as the physical body, I'm looking at structure and coming from a rolfing background, I'm looking primarily at, at, the, uh, at the fascial tissue and looking w- with a, a rolfer's eyes as far as uh, what's the posture and what are the movement patterns with regard to this person's uh, uh, fascial system. And then I'm also looking at how, how are things firing? So looking at the nervous system and, and doing muscle testing and, and looking at movement and looking at what's, what's turned on, what's turned off, if you want to put it in, in more applied kinesiology terms, and uh, getting a real sense of w- what's going on here physically, structurally. And so then, like I was saying, it, the next question is why? What, what's the reason? And what I keep coming back to is there's some sort of trauma, however, uh, however localized the trauma or however globally the trauma was, however acute the traumatic event or however much it was, it was a chronic traumatic situation, there's something that caused an adaptation in this system to either shut off certain neural lines, uh, permanently contract certain areas of the fascial tissue, in response to the trauma, whether it was a physical trauma, an emotional trauma, or a mental trauma. So it's always coming back to trauma as far as what's, what's the cause. And then, and then addressing that trauma is what I've found to be the most effective uh, way to deal with all, all the various uh, things that can happen in the in that flow chart or in that chain of events from there. So again, start with the Achilles. Look at the at the at the structural system. Look at it fascially. Look at the muscles and the nerves, and then what's going on in the. Uh, uh, what I do is I shift from the gross to the subtle realm, and I'm looking at chakras. I'm looking at the energy system. I'm looking at. At meridians, I'm looking how's the how's the subtle energy flow, and then where it goes from there is into the mind or in or what some people would call the causal level, and I'm looking at what's going on in this person's mind that's causing the patterns in the in the subtle energy field that are causing the patterns 
in the physical body. What you're talking about goes beyond fascia. I don't think that everybody knows exactly what fascia is and the importance it plays in our in our structure and how emotions can affect that kind of thing and, and all that stuff. So um, first of all, what's fascia? <laughs> in, in simple terms, fascia is connective tissue. Yep. So tendons, ligaments, those things are, are connective tissue as well. And and where do we find fascia? Yeah, so so tendons and ligaments are are connective tissue and are technically fascia, but but uh, the, the term fascia certainly from a a, a rolfing standpoint is is typically talking about the connective tissue that that surrounds every structure in the body. So you hear you hear terms like the fascial web or the fascial network. And and the truth is, fascial tissue surrounds and permeates every every structure in the body. So every bone, uh, every organ, every every muscle, belly, every muscle fiber has fascial tissue uh, surrounding it and and uh, permeating it in various ways. Um, so if you take just a single muscle, if you just take the bicep, for example. From the bone, you, you have the tendon attached to the bone, and then that tendon, what most people think is the tendon ends and then the muscle begins, and then at the other end of the muscle, the muscle ends and the tendon begins, and then that tendon attaches to another bone. But really what happens is, is instead of that tendon ending and muscle beginning, that tendon uh, hollows out and... and uh, sort of separates out in a part- particular way where then there are muscle fibers contained within that, that tendon. And so really you have a continuous tendon, if, if you want to think of it that way. It's just that on the two ends, you don't have muscle fiber in, uh, in between it. And, and so the tendon hollows out, and it, and it isn't just one big hollow thing. It's actually a big, a big uh, web or network that's holding all the individual muscle fibers that make up the muscle belly. What if there's two guys and they both bend down and reach their toes and one guy can put their palms on the ground and the other guy is sweating and grunting and can't get his fingers down to his toes? Right. How much of that is because of the contractile tissues of the muscle versus the the actual fascia that's tight in in one place and not in another it's mostly the fascial tissue that is restricting the movement which is counter to what most people think most people think that the actin myosin filaments are stuck in a contracted state <clears throat> excuse me and it's because the the muscle tissue won't won't decontract uh, that the mobility is impaired, but uh, I, I don't know. I don't know how to put a, per, a percentage on it or quantify it. But um, it's much more the fascial tissue that's involved, and an inelasticity uh, and, a, and a shortening of the fascial tissue that's determining uh, passive range of motion. So let's say these same two guys they're standing side to side. 
One of them has what I would think of as a posterior pelvic tilt, and maybe they have tight hamstrings and more of maybe the classic endurance runner's body. And maybe the other guy has an anterior pelvic tilt. The body that I think of is like the NFL running back kind of guy who has uh, super, super strong hip flexors. And whether it is or not, like the, it looks like there's like a big lumbar lordosis. Mm-hmm. The glutes are very prominent, that kind of thing. Um, is that all? Is that all making sense? Those two, the the two different pictures. Yeah. A lot of what's making up those two different body shapes, what's holding them in those two different patterns, that is fascia. Right. Do you agree? Yes. Okay. Can someone change that? Yes. The fascial tissue gets short and loses its elasticity in, in response to uh, a few different things. It'll, it'll, it'll do that in response to trauma. So, for example, when it, when it gets stretched too far too fast, it'll respond by laying down more, more fibers in the tissue. So the concentration of fibers in the tissue will, will increase its inelasticity. In the same way that, that if the skin uh, has friction on it, it'll make an adaptation that, that enables it basically to handle more friction, right? The skin will callus. The fascial tissue will do a similar thing where it will lay down uh, more fibers to increase the concentration, which, which then makes it a denser, less elastic tissue, which then means that now if that tissue is put under the same tensional strain, it, it'll be able to hold up better. And it's the same process that the bone does when the bone is put under a, a compressional strain. The bone will lay down tissue to beef up the bone's ability to handle more compression. So in the opposite direction, when you, just like with bones, when you stop having compressional force on the bone, the body starts to reabsorb that tissue. And the same thing happens with the fascial tissue. If, if you cease to have excessive tensional strain on that fascial tissue, then the body starts to reabsorb those fibers. So that's, that's one way. If, there's a, if the nervous system is heavily involved, again, most likely due to trauma, then the body's going to keep that fascial tissue as it is until you get the nervous system uh, to change what it's doing. Uh, Rolfing, obviously, is a, is a uh, manual technique at, uh, at changing the concentration of the, of the fascial tissue and establishing more elasticity. So there's these various ways. Stretching, some people think stretching is a good way to do it, and stretching has obviously been the most uh, popular, most talked about way of doing it. But generally speaking, the fascial tissue doesn't respond real well to stretching because with stretching, you're basically putting the fascial tissue under a tensional strain, which isn't telling the body to make an adaptation to the fascial tissue to allow more elasticity, it's typically telling the body we need to beef up this fascial tissue because it's going to be put under this kind of tensional strain. You were saying that stretching does not work very well to lengthen fascia or muscle really permanently and and make postural changes with it, I mean. So what does work well? Getting a change in the person's mind is, is really what it comes back to. If you're trying to if you're trying to locate ground zero as far as what what's the cause of the tight fascial tissue, 
the the person's mind is in a state where where there's programming happening that is deciding how much range of motion should we allow each joint to have and if you think of it in terms of there's there's what would be considered an ideal state or a natural or normal state none of us are in that state because we've all had these traumas occur in which instead of our our normal natural state being allowed to happen the the ego mind has stepped in and has compensated and so there's there's programming in there that that's basically based on a past event and it's based on trying to protect oneself against uh, that same kind of event from happening again and so what happens is it impairs uh, the function and it, and it leaves someone uh, in a in a state where their fascial tissue is is being the state of their fascial tissue is being determined by the the programming in the ego mind. So what changes it ultimately? It's that you got to go back and you got to get that programming to come undone and allow the person's innate conscious awareness to uh, to regulate the system. All right. So I'm going to take a step back. That's fascinating, and we're going to get into that a little bit more, but. Just to take it a step back again, I keep thinking of the runner, the long distance runner, the endurance runner. A lot of runners have a tight posterior train. Do you Mm -hmm. agree? Yeah. And to some degree, that helps performance. Do you agree? The, The tightness helps performance? Yeah. It provides more of a spring in your step, I think, if if you have some of that tightness. Or do you have a different way of looking at it? No, I would say that's true. The the fat one of the functions of the fascial tissue is the the tensile strength of it and the and the elasticity of it and if you didn't have any if you didn't have any give to the fascial tissue th- then then there's uh, a tendency towards tearing to happen when it's put under tensional strain if you have too much elasticity then then you you have weakness right the and you have hypermobility and so yes a big part of conditioning the body for certain activities is to increase the, the fascial tissue's uh, springiness, as you put it, or, or, the, or the, um, the elasticity in that tissue. So depending on what the activity is, the body makes a specific adaptation that, that makes it better and better at doing that. So if you do too much stre- uh, stretching, which, again, I don't think is very effective anyway, but let's, let's j- just hypothetically say that you can lengthen that tissue out, um, then I think to your point, you can actually work against yourself and undo the adaptation that your, that your body naturally does to the fascial tissue, which gives you that elasticity. You're, you're taking it away by trying to do stretches that, that lengthen it out again. You want to have a balance with fascia, uh, how tight it is. If it's too tight, it'll lead to injury. If it's not tight enough, essentially what we're calling weakness, what does tight fascia do with, does it do anything to restrict blood flow or otherwise negatively impact tissue health? And again, I'm just, I want to like make it clear that there are all sorts of different like fascial sort of negative patterns that you could be in. But I just kind of keep thinking of the runner because I think that's like mm-hmm. so common and it's well known. So it's like, think about that hamstring in that runner. It's tight 
and in a way that's helping him to perform better, to be able to use less, you know, ATP, less energy, be more efficient at the same aerobic capacity and, and so forth. Because when he, when his foot is hitting, is striking the ground, it's just burrow and you kind of like, you bounce (laughs) further right like if you have that there so so that's that's a good thing in a way if you want if you want that performance if you desire that and at some point it gets like really tight what are the implications on blood flow and tissue health and those types of things that an athlete may be able to might want to think about or or maybe a coach might want to think about or maybe you know a doctor or a healthcare practitioner might want to think about in when working with an athlete as far as tightness in the tissue if if it if you take it to an extreme the fascial tissue like you said can get tight enough to where it inhibits fluid exchange it uh, it can severely immobilize joint mobility and then you get all all kinds of problems that that stem from there and so it's a question of you know what would cause it to be excessive and then you get into things like like you mentioned earlier overtraining where you can perform a certain activity to muscle exhaustion and once the the muscle is exhausted to the extent that you that you continue putting that tissue under that same strain, the, the body ends up having to rely more and more on that fascial tissue and, the, and it's a more severe adaptation that happens. There seems to be a point at which the body goes from trying to perform that activity better to trying to protect itself from injury. And that, that's the point at which you know, you're, you're getting into dangerous territory. And How do you know you're there? Yeah, it's a it's a good question, and you know, and it it varies, and it and it's a it's a vague thing. You know, athletes in general, the the more they get to know their bodies, the, the more you can tell uh, simply the, the pain of fatigue from injury pain, and you can tell when uh, when when your movement patterns are uh, are starting to seize up on you. And so there, you know, there's a very distinct sensation to it, and there's obviously a, a an obvious change in one's form when they're performing a certain activity. And you can feel that okay, if you know, if you keep going, your form starts getting worse and worse, and uh, and the feeling starts changing from again from that feeling of fatigue to a, more of a of a painful feeling that suggests. Uh, that damage is starting to happen. What's a fascial adhesion? Yeah, so that word gets used in various ways. Scar, scar tissue is is kind of the common thing that comes to mind with regard to adhesions. <laughs> fascial tissue will will start to, uh, in in simple terms, it'll start to kind of glue itself together. There there there's there's a stickiness that happens that um, causes tissue to to adhere to other tissue, which is a different adaptation than the laying down of of fibrous tissue within within the fascial uh, membrane. And so the the stickiness can happen from various things from from injury uh, from from surgery, which which you could certainly say is injury, um, things like diet, things like overuse, 
lack of rest, all these things change what's going on cellularly that, uh, that will cause ad adhesions to form. And those adhesions then impair function in the way that we were talking about. So, so you could say that, you know, if you, if you run a certain distance uh, at a certain pace, your, your body's adaptation is, is going to be a, a positive adaptation, meaning it's, it's going to be uh, causing certain physiological changes, one of them being the fascial tissue adapting in a way that's, that's going to lead to being able to better perform that activity next time. If you, if you hit a certain point and then, and then push further and, uh, and keep doing that activity until, let's say, eventually your body just seizes up and you're super sore the next day and, and maybe you, th there isn't an actual injury that you feel happened that day, uh, but what will happen is the the physiological adaptation is actually that adhesions formed rather than the, the positive adaptation, then what will happen is the next time you go to perform that same activity, you're actually not going to be able to perform it as well because tissue has adhered to itself in a way that's going to actually inhibit function rather than promote it. Let's say we have a fascial adhesion and let's say that that's causing some pain. And we're in that state that you were just talking about, about now the runner goes out and can't run as well. Mm -hmm. And they probably feel it. Uh, well, you tell me, will they feel it? Will they feel it in their legs? Will it, will it, will it be soreness oftentimes? Or is there, is there also, what about that flat feeling that people will get of just like, that just wasn't a good run? Could that be fascia? Or is that just more of some kind of energy system? I would say the flat feeling could, could be either one. There's so many things, sleep and diet and your mental state and, you know, so many things. How might you get a clue that, oh, I should be thinking about fascia? I, I, I guess the way I'd answer that is, is one should always be thinking fascia if they're, if they're dealing with physical maladies or, or if they're trying to improve athletic performance. As far as trying to identify, you know, is the, is the fascial tissue where the problem is here? Um, generally speaking, the, the fascial tissue is always involved. So, so it's more which part of the fascial tissue is, is uh, meaning which area in the body. Because what, what's very common is that you have fascial restriction going on in one area of the body, and then it shows up symptomatically somewhere else. So... So when the hamstrings get too tight, that doesn't necessarily mean a person's hamstrings are going to start hurting when they go running. It, it may result in knee pain that happens, or it may result in, in problems with their low back. And the cause is actually tight fascial uh, tissue in the hamstring area. Uh, and so, you know, rolfers, for example, are, are trained to look at that and, and look at a, a body and discern where, where is the actual fascial tightness happening that, again, maybe, maybe at the other end of the body from, from where the actual symptom is. 
Is there anything people can do at home just for like in general? For example, a runner again, they may do a practice of yoga um, once or twice a week just to try to help mitigate any general issues of different tightnesses and whether they're thinking about fascia or or they're not consciously they may be doing some different things like that they may they yeah. might do some different kinds of uh, body weight exercises make sure they're doing some lateral movement uh, so that they're evening their body out balancing some of the musculature the fascia that stuff uh, from all the linear movement that they're doing when they're running is there anything in your mind that is less effective or like you've mentioned a couple times that stretching you feel is not super effective for creating postural changes at least what's effective what's not effective do you have to go see a rolfer is that the only thing or is there anything <laughs> they can do at home the way i'd answer that is that it, it all comes back to the mind so if you change from a, a mechanical viewpoint that the the body is the this mechanical machine and and look at it that the that that everything that's going on in the body is a, is a manifestation of, of what's happening in the mind. Uh, if, if we just take stretching, if when you're doing a stretch, what's happening is you're, you're putting your body in a position that promotes or encourages subtle energy movement in a particular way, right? Because for subtle energy to move through the system, the, it, it moves through the, the actual fascial tissue, for example. And so a common way of, of repressing or restricting energy flow is for the fascial tissue to contract. So when you put your body in a certain posture, whether, whether you want to call that a stretch or not, you know, I don't know at what point a particular uh, you know, body position be, becomes a stretch, but, you know, the basic idea is whatever position you're in, there's energy flow then that's, that's, uh, that, that's kind of promoted by that body position. And then if you change body positions, now the flow tends to be a little different. And so the system of yoga is, is about putting your body in these various positions that then promotes energy flow in a certain way. So then the next step is once the energy is is tending to move in a certain way because you're in a certain position, then the next question is, can your mind allow that movement? Or does your mind want to prevent and restrict that movement? And you can be in a certain position or a certain stretch or a certain yoga posture, and your mind can sit there and say no to that energy movement, uh, you know, Forever, basically. So simply, simply doing the stretch doesn't make the change happen. However, through practice, one can get so that they, they start to sense the discomfort. They start to sense, you know, what is the energy movement or what is the emotion or what is the sensation that is uncomfortable about a certain posture, about a certain movement or about a certain stretch. And then... And then notice what is going on in their mind that, uh, you know, that doesn't like that or that feels threatened by that or, or that finds that painful. And, and then it, it's a matter of working with that. It's a matter of staying with it anyway, breathing through it, uh, staying in present time or even better yet, present moment awareness and, and allowing the change to happen. 
allowing the the emotional processing to happen, allowing the change in uh, belief or the change in perspective. Uh, ultimately allowing your mind to come out of the programming it was in that said, don't allow this movement, and, and getting it to where it shifts back into uh, uh, responding to what's actually happening in the present versus staying stuck in a program based on some past situation. So trying to get back to this idea of the mind splitting its awareness off. And, you know, as a functional neurologist, I I automatically think of body awareness. I think of parietal lobe function. So Mm. I don't know if you tend to think about it like that or not, but will you elucidate on this mind splitting idea? Like we can go back to my Achilles if you want, or like the runner with the tight hamstring or something, if you want. How does this mind splitting thing show up? This this is where it gets a little more metaphysical than certainly what, uh, you know, the Western scientific paradigm has been. If, if you think in terms of subtle energy. What's subtle energy? Yeah, that's a, that's a tough one to just sum up. Just do it, man. All right. (laughs) (laughs) The way I talk about subtle energy is, is I I mostly speak of chakra energy. And, you know, the, the, the word energy gets thrown around like crazy these days. And what most people are talking about w- would be electromagnetic uh, energy. And there's the idea that, that we have this auric field, that we have these chakras, which are energy centers within that auric field. And... Uh, the the flow, the balance, the the state of of that of those energies is what determines you know everything really as far as what's going on in a person's body, what's going on mentally, what's going on emotionally, and so this idea of of going from the gross level of reality to the subtle level of reality, a, a, a good a good example of it is is when you have when you have uh, th- three different states of, of water, right? You, you can have water in a solid state or a liquid state or a gas state. And you can think of subtle energy, for example, let's just say subtle energy is, is like water in a liquid state where, um, where w- when water is frozen as ice, now you have it in a solid state. So it's the same basic material, but, but it's in a different, uh, a, a different state of manifestation. And so what most people think of as reality and, uh, um, is, is what is generally termed gross-level reality, meaning solid-state matter. And the truth is there's all this, all this ma- matter, all this, this action going on that is in frequency ranges that are, that are above the solid state uh, frequency range. And that's, and, I mean, even if you're, uh, you know, even if you're listening and you're thinking like, oh man, this energy medicine stuff, give me a break. Even if you're super Western minded about the stuff, I mean, if you've had chemistry 101 or like even seventh grade science or something like, you know that the Western concept about matter is that 
it's there's an atomic level and there's protons and electrons and neutrons and all that stuff and and so and aluminum has a different vibration than than gold does and and so there's every everything is made up of matter and depending on what kind of matter there is there uh there's going to be a different like vibration state just on that level so um and I'm not saying that's all of it, but I'm just saying, like, I feel like this kind of talk sounds so weird when you're, you know, it sounds so airy-fairy or, yeah. or hippie or, or something. I don't know. But, um, you know, it, oh, the, the auric field and stuff. It's like, oh, you know, it just sounds weird. Yeah. Um, but, I, you know, it's really, it, it's really there. And um, I don't... I want to just say, right, I guess I'm going to say right here that, um, that I've had you work on me and I have, I, I get up off the table and I, I, uh, can see and, and sense a difference in, in my body when I get up off the table. So I'm just saying that so that people kind of have like a, an idea i guess that it's not just super airy fairy or whatever i i don't know i i uh i mean for some people they're like they're not going to need all those qualifiers but i just right i um but for other people they're I, i'd love for people to have an open mind about this yeah well, i i appreciate you sharing that and and it's true that that's that's the common perception and and just to be clear when i you know when i started down this road of alternative therapies, I uh, I went to the Rolf Institute and and at the Rolf Institute during my training, they they you know initially they, they just tried to suggest that emotions might have something to do with with why I had chronic hip pain and uh, and it made me furious, <laughs> which which was an emotion, but I you know I I didn't want to hear it. I thought that was that was. Uh, you know, like you say, just a bunch of airy fairy stuff. When they tried to suggest energy, I really didn't want to hear it. That didn't fit into my belief system at all. I wanted to fix my hip so that I could continue with athletics, and uh, and I was really frustrated that that they were presenting, uh, you know, subtle energies as being involved somehow. So. So I've come a long way in my belief systems around this stuff, and but, but I certainly understand uh, someone being in a position where they hear this stuff and it just sounds like like some kind of make believe. So I, I appreciate you speaking to that. So getting back to the splits in the mind, how does that happen, man? If you think of th- this state of of conscious awareness or this neutral state or, or ground uh, ground state where our attention is, is just being there in the, in the present moment, interacting with what's happening around us now. Uh, what happens is our, our various organs of perception, meaning our physical body, our eyes, our ears, as well as our subtle energetic organs of perception, primarily chakras, uh, are, are bringing in sensory input. And... Ideally, all that sensory input comes into 
the field, into the physical body, up the spinal cord, into the brain, and the brain processes it, and then it, it shifts into the mind. And, and it, we could do a whole conversation on the difference between brain and mind, but if, you, if we can just summarize it by saying the brain is gross level and the mind is subtle level. Uh, ideally, the mind accepts all that input and organizes it and, uh, and makes meaning out of it. And then adaptations occur and, and the person uh, continues to grow and get a better, uh, a more and more complete understanding of the world around them. However, trauma happens when there's an overload to the system. The sensory input is, is too much for that person's mind at that particular stage of their development. And instead of the sensory input being allowed to, to travel through the system the way it's supposed to, there's an adaptation that occurs. And generally speaking, that adaptation starts with repression. It, it, th there's contraction that happens that tries to tone down uh, the, the input. If the, if the situation is intense enough to where repression isn't enough, then it's, it's just like an electrical system in a house. The, the fuse blows, right, or the, or the switch gets thrown. And so the mind throws the switch, which, which is analogous to the, a split happening. It throws the switch to protect the overall system. So the house gets struck by lightning, the, the switch gets thrown, and you know, the, lamp, the lamp turns off, right? Well, we all know that if that's what happened, you can't, you can't just replace the light bulb and you can't just buy a new lamp or you can't you know, uh, try to take the lamp apart and work on it. You got to go get the switch to turn back on. So the same thing happens in the body. The, the switch that happens with trauma which is there to protect the overall system, doesn't just turn on, uh, turn back on by itself. It doesn't just turn back on with time. Um, there's, there's specific things that need to happen for it to turn back on. So we all are going forward with, with all kinds of switches turned off because of trauma. And we're simply living out symptomatically uh, all, all these different maladies that are a result of those switches being turned off. And, and so the work I do is, is about specifically trying to look at where, where has this splitting occurred in the mind? How is that, how is that manifesting? And, uh, and then dimension therapy is, a, is, about, uh, is, is, a, is a particular systematic approach to figuring out wh where has this happened and, and how to get them turned back on. I love it. You know, dimension therapy is not the only system that looks at that kind of stuff. And I say that to add credence to it. I mean, it's not like mm -hmm. you're this weird lone guy that's ever thought about this <laughs> right. or something like that. Like right. you've come up, you've developed a system that's worked well for you and and others to get at something that that people that are interested in, in true transformation have been pursuing for quite a long time. And I think that's why it's so fascinating. So this works for someone on that ego level, I guess you were talking about. Like it, it works to um, 
you know, maybe just get rid of pain or that kind of thing on that body level. But to me, it speaks to that true inner transformation. Some people would say that the whole purpose of getting injured in the first place is that it's an opportunity to learn and to grow, which, you know, again, if you're the person that has a injured hip at the moment and you just want to like get back out onto the field or whatever and and be playing rugby or whatever then that's going to piss you off to even hear that but it's kind of a I don't know it's an interesting way to think about it what about this mind split I think it's a fascinating way of talking about it how can people explore that on their own yeah that's a good question I know it's a good question Lance that's why I asked it (laughs) (laughs) I'll try to come up with a good answer. <laughs> the process I was describing earlier is as far as bringing your attention to what's, you know, what's going on here. So, you know, if, if there's a certain area of the body that is, that is giving someone problem, then it's looking at, okay, well, what's, you know, wh- what is the movement pattern? What is the, uh, what is the, the sensation around that? How does it affect the rest of the body? Okay, so before you go on, but you also had said, and actually, I don't know if you said this on the the air or not, but my understanding of your way of looking at this is that once this mind split happens, your conscious mind can't actually be aware of the fact that it happened, sort of. Is that right? Yeah, it's a good point. So if you use the electrical system analogy to arrive at, well, maybe the switch is thrown, you don't even... It doesn't even occur to you unless you go to turn the lamp on and the lamp won't work. And so then, then begins this process of, well, what's, you know, what's happening here? And, and that's kind of what I'm getting at is, is you start looking at, well, uh, you know, beyond just my, my Achilles tendon hurts. And so how do I make my Achilles tendon feel better? It's, it's what's going on in the body, what, what's going on structurally. What, what do you notice as, as far as functional impairment? And, and you start doing this tracing back towards the source. What will ultimately happen is you'll come up against a conundrum, really, where, where you notice that you, you just kind of find a blankness in yourself. When you do a certain movement or a certain posture and you notice energy flow in a certain way, you'll notice the discomfort. And then you try to get at, well, why do I have such anxiety around this? Why do I have such anger or or why is it it's so uncomfortable energetically and what you'll notice is the tendency is always to come out of the discomfort whether it's the physical discomfort or come out of the energetic discomfort isn't that or out of the emotional right so when you stay in it what'll happen is as you stay stay with it consciously two things will happen one is that a tolerance of it will increase and you'll notice that the experience, while it might initially uh, increase as you sit with it, it, it'll plateau and then decrease. And as that experience tones down, what it'll bring you to is an experience of a void or a silence or a blankness or a flatness. And, and at that point, people really tend to simply shift their awareness and start looking somewhere else. So there's a practice of sitting with those empty spaces or those silences or those places where the mind feels confused and stumped, and you start to recognize this is a split. There's a split happening right here. And again, instead of automatically shifting away from that back to something that seems more obvious to you, 
there's the practice of simply sitting in that split, which is basically, you know, what, what most meditative practices get to, is you sit in that silence, you sit in that not knowing, and there's something fundamental that happens that is, that, that precedes the ego mind's perception and restores capacities that previously were inhibited. So there are, you know, there are infinite techniques and approaches out there, as, as you commented on, and reading about some of those approaches, getting, getting more of a sense of, of how this stuff works, one can simply start an inquiry into their own experience with regard to whatever is giving them trouble, and they'll start to recognize some of these things I'm talking about, and, and recognizing, start being able to categorize some of these experiences and, uh, and, and, you know, w- without achieving some, uh, you know, state of total enlightenment, no- notice that they are able to heal injuries in their body that they've suffered with for a long time. It's, you don't have to become totally consciously realized in order to get positive change to happen. It, it's actually quite remarkable the change, even just in working with clients and, and helping them to work on themselves. They start getting profound change simply paying attention to their own experience in a way that they hadn't previously. And again, it, it doesn't, they don't, they tend to think, well, you know, I'm not ready to do that, or I haven't spent enough years meditating, or I'm not some enlightened guru, so how could I do that? Uh, people find pretty quickly that, that there's a dramatic effect when they just shift their intention around it. Lance and I lost our connection right at the end there, so the ending was a little abrupt. We decided it was probably for the best because I could honestly talk with him all day about this stuff, but where's that going to get you? I connected with him afterwards long enough to ask him what his number one health tip was. He said, allow your discomfort to guide your attention to where your mind is not wanting to look. Great advice from my friend. Easier said than done. From my perspective, this is way harder than making a commitment to go for a run every day or to eat more vegetables. This takes real discipline, mental discipline. It's also well worth the journey. If you break big goals into smaller ones, you can enjoy successes along the way. I like that. I'm going to start inviting you to try something out at the end of every episode of Vibrant Potential. Often, it'll be something related to the episode. It'll always be something I hope helps you to grow and find your vibrant potential. Today, I'm asking you to try out sitting. Call it meditation if you're attracted to that, or don't if you're not. You don't have to sit in full lotus position, although you could if you want to. Just like Lance suggests, Sit still and let your mind highlight where your discomfort is. Is it in your body? Is it in your mind? What's that ever-present voice screaming at you at this moment? Get up, get the dishes done, submit those taxes, go for a run. I like to thank that voice and then tell it that I heard its advice and I'm choosing to go another direction this time. I haven't figured out how to make that voice shut up anyway, so I just stopped trying to get it to. Instead, I peacefully send it gratitude for doing its job and let it know I'm choosing something else this time. The point here is to make it small, peeps. Make it ridiculously small and easy. Two minutes, perhaps. Or five if you want to. 
Make it so small that the voice won't talk you out of it while you're doing it, though. Do it every day and see what happens. I also invite you to journal about it. If that's too much work, though, just ponder it while you're driving to work. Are you calmer? Does your body feel any different? Thanks for listening today. And if you take my invitation, thanks for playing. Until next time, I'm Dr. Chris Frickman, and here's to your vibrant potential. Visit drchrisfrickman.com for more cutting-edge content, including nutrition and detoxification advice, unique fitness videos, and more.